0: I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of God's Word and turn to the passage that was just read, if you're not there, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2. My name is Isaiah, I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and uh, it truly is a delight for us to gather week by week. I hope you sense that, I hope you feel that, regardless of how you come into this space. uh, I do hope that if you are part of the Sojourn family, that this does feel like family to you. We're just so glad that you're here. Shakespeare wrote in one of his plays, As You Like It, that all the world is a stage, and some of you can probably finish that statement, and men and women merely players. The story we use to make sense of our lives on a weekly basis often puts us at the center we are the heroes of our own story. But we often forget that our life is lived in the middle of a cosmic drama that's been going on for literally thousands of years, a drama for, for which we are in which we are not the authors and in which we are not the heroes. But a drama in which we do have a role to play. We have a place to play in this grand and glorious story. So this message this morning is titled, Your Role in the Drama of Community. We're beginning a four-week series on what community is. So what is this cosmic grand drama, and what role do you and I have to play? To answer that question, let's allow this drama to unfold in five acts act number one, a communal God. A communal God. As the curtain opens, the stage seems to be empty of players. In fact, there is just one player, one being, God. But the depth of this being is beyond our ability to fathom. Genesis 1.1 opens, in the beginning, God. Later, this being, as he consults within himself, speaks in the first person plural. Let us make man in our image. So the God of the Bible exists as a single God, but he himself is not singular. Now, if we were to turn to John chapter 1, verse 1, it echoes this opening verse of Scripture. In John 1.1, we hear, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in those three statements, we are told that the Word is as eternal as God Himself. In the beginning was the Word. But we're also told that the Word coexisted with God in the beginning as separate from God. So, the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So distinct from God in some way. And yet, what does the third phrase said? Say, the word was himself God. And of course, in verse 14, the scriptures tell us who this word was. It is none other than Jesus Christ before he took on flesh at his incarnation. So back in Genesis 1-2, though, after we're introduced to God, who is in the beginning, we are told that the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. And John 14-26 tells us that the Spirit of God is a distinct member of the Godhead. So we are very quickly introduced to the third person of this Godhead, a third player if you will. So the drama of community opens with something undeniable within Christianity. This separates Christianity from every other world, religion, or belief system. This fact, the one true God exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what exactly does this mean? It means that God himself is a community. God does not just exist in community. He is himself a communal God. One God, three persons. And this is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you've probably heard that the Trinity is incomprehensible. It's something that we can't really understand, so don't even bother trying Or maybe you've heard the really sad illustrations that are used to describe the Trinity. The Trinity is like an egg with a shell and a yolk and uh, whatever the other part is. And the Trinity is like water, the three forms of water, vapor and ice and uh, liquid and so many other illustrations of the Trinity that are frankly terrible. They're actually heretical. But the Trinity has been revealed to us in Scripture so in some way we can understand it. Each member of the Trinity has a personal property that distinguishes that one from the others. So let's ask this question. What makes the Father the Father? Distinct from Son and Spirit? Well, the answer is fatherhood. The Father is The father because he eternally generated or has eternally begotten a son. So what makes the son a son? Well, sonship. It's because the son has been eternally generated by the father that he is by definition a son. The son from his father begotten by his father from all eternity in the words of one author. And he is generated from the Father's divine nature. That's why in uh, the book of Colossians, he is described as the image of the invisible God. But there's a third member of the Trinity, the Spirit. What makes the Spirit the Spirit? How is he distinct from Father and Son? Well, he's the Spirit because he eternally proceeds from Father and Son. In fact, the same word is used for the person of the Spirit that is also used for the idea of breath as well as wind in both the Old and the New Testament. And context determines which is being referred to. So theologians would describe that the Father's and Son's relationship with the Spirit as procession. The Spirit proceeds. From Father and Son. Or better, spiration. Say spiration, never heard that word. Well, you've heard the word respiration, the idea of breathing. Spiration is the idea that God and Son are eternally sending out the Spirit. So we summarize these exact facts that I've just stated, we summarize these together in our profession of faith earlier when we recited the Athanasian Creed. This is how the Trinity has been understood for 2,000 years of church history. The Trinity is not incomprehensible, despite what you've heard. It is glorious. It is transcendent. And yes, it's a bit mystifying, but the very names of the Godhead help us to understand who they are in relation to one another. And they tell us that God is a community. One God, three persons. But what sort of community is God? Let's be honest. We all know of communities in which we would not want to live. So this community, what is is unique about this community of the Godhead? Is it something desirable? Is it even enviable? Well, if we were to turn to John 17, and we won't do so for sake of time, but verses 20 to 26, as Jesus is praying by the Spirit to His Father, the Trinity is in fellowship and in communion, and we get to overhear in that great high priestly prayer as it's known. In those verses, we see that the Father is in the Son, and yet at the same time, the Son is in the Father. This interpenetration of some sort. We're told that the Father gave the Son glory, and the Son shares that glory with His followers. We're told that the Father sent the Son, that the Father eternally loves the Son, before, since before the foundations of the world ever existed, and further, we're told that the Father loves the followers of His Son. So act one of this grand drama before Genesis 1, 1 even opens, is there is a God who's existed in community, in love and perfect unity from eternity past, period. That is the true God. One God, three persons. So Act 1 is all about a communal God dwelling in perfect love and fellowship, co-eternal, co-equal in glory. And the crazy thing is, the drama of community could could have started and stopped right there. That could be the end of the story. God, Father, Father, Son, Spirit, dwelling in perfect fellowship and harmony, content in and of themselves, With no need for any other being. No need for creation. No need for any one of us. But the drama doesn't end there. It begins there. Because God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, are generous and life-giving. After all, the Father is a father because he begets a son. Father and Son send a spirit. They are life-giving and generous beings. So act two, the Father creates a community to image and enjoy the communal God. Act one, a communal God. Act two, God creates a community to image, to represent, and to enjoy the communal God. So Genesis 1 verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So don't miss what's happening in these verses. First, man was created in God's image for community with God. Here in Genesis 1 and later in Genesis 2, we see that God is in a direct relationship with man to the point that God would actually make it a habit to walk with his created man and woman in the garden that he had made for them. Uninterrupted, perfect fellowship between the communal God and the little community that he has created. So you and I, don't miss this, you and I as beings made in the image of God, were made for fellowship with that glorious Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit who exist in perfect contentment, harmony, and unity and have since the before the foundations of the world and will into eternity future, you and I were made to fellowship with that God. Now, if we'd read the entirety of chapter one, like a drumbeat, we would hear these words repeated over and over again. And God saw that it was good. 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 Three more times, seven times in total, God saw something was good. And then suddenly you get to verse 18 and that drumbeat is interrupted drastically. For the first time in the history of creation, in Genesis 2, verse 18, something is not good. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So second, God made mankind not just to be in community with God, but he created mankind for and in community with other human beings. He created him in the image of God, the text says. He created them male and female. Now, this makes sense, doesn't it? If God is one God in three persons and mankind is meant to represent God, then it's going to take more than one person to represent God because God himself is one God three persons. A single person cannot be the image of a unified trinity. God's nature could not be adequately represented in a single human male, which is good for us men to remember, or a single human female. God's nature and glory required diversity. A man and a woman together, but even that could not contain the diversity, the creative diversity of God. And God's first command to them was to go and make other representatives of God to fill the earth. So let's pause here for just a moment for a brief application. Any individual group of people Or rather, let me rephrase that any individual or group of people that views itself as intrinsically better than any other individual or group of people is practically denying the image of God in mankind. And it's so easy for us to do, so easy. It's so easy to begin to look at a group of people that's different from us within a society, whether they're illegal immigrants or whether they are those who are lower on the socioeconomic scale or those with a different skin tone or a different accent or those from a different ideological viewpoint or a political party. It's so easy to begin to view them as at least slightly essentially inferior. And this is a practical denial of the image of God in man. Second point to pause for application. The text tells us that this marriage was designed by God between a man and a woman as a unique manifestation of God's glory. But American culture and other Western cultures, have turned this God-displaying institution into an individual-defining institution. Rather than marriage being that which is to represent the glory of God, it has become that which by we try to create our own identities. And the argument goes, well, love is love, right? So I ought to have the freedom to define who I am as a human being through whom I choose to marry or whom I choose to love in a romantic way, even if that one is of the same gender. But friends, according to our text, when that happens, mankind has decided that it knows better what best displays God's glory than God himself does. And when a culture responds this way to a display of God's glory, it has deliberately turned away from what is best for human flourishing. And it has begun worshiping the creature more than the creator. Which is exactly what Romans chapter 1 tells us. So we've come to act 3. We were made for communion with a triune God and we were made in community with other human beings. So why are we at war with God? Why are we at war with other humans? Why have a handful of people walked into this place feeling utterly isolated and lonely and forsaken this morning if act one and act two are true? Well, because of act three, a broken community. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, reads this way. Now, the serpent, and this is our enemy Satan, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And in that moment, creation cracked. Community crumbled. And humankind has ever since been in a rebel, been a rebel in arms against God. And ever since, mankind has been in a civil war within ourselves. And what was the breaking point? The breaking point was unbelief in the words and the character of God. And in the aftermath of that unbelief, when Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan over God and to surrender blessed submission to God, this glorious Trinity, and instead reached out for some perceived autonomy, the aftermath is spiritual and physical death combined with shame and fear. And when God confronts them, that perfect little community is shattered even further. Because rather than owning up to his own failures of responsibility, what does the first man do? He responds in absolute self-centeredness. He blames both Eve, the woman God had given to him, and his creator. All of a sudden, life wasn't about God anymore. It was about him. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate, Genesis 3.12 says. When Liz and I were living in Nebraska, we uh, enjoyed an especially delicious cantaloupe on one spring afternoon. We were sitting out on the back patio and we took the seeds from that cantaloupe and we planted them in the garden box that was, I think to this point, pretty empty out back. And some friends told us, hey, it's a store-bought cantaloupe. Don't expect to get anything from it. But within a few weeks, we were watching this healthy little cantaloupe plant grow. Fascinating story, I know. Surprising. You plant cantaloupe seeds, and wow, a cantaloupe grows. Shocking. Now, the story would have been a whole lot more fun if I had said we planted cantaloupe seeds and guess what came up? A fig tree, or better yet, a fig newton tree. That would have been amazing. But there's nothing surprising that seeds produce the fruit of the plant from which they came. And it shouldn't be any surprise that the seed of unbelief, once it's planted in the soil of the human heart, produces nothing but self-centeredness. It's incapable of producing anything else. When God is no longer at the center of human existence, we naturally experience the breaking of human community. So a communal God created us for community, in community, to image Him. But we broke it. And it's still broken. So, is there any hope for this drama, this story of community? Well, Act Four says yes. Act Four is a restored community. And to dive into this act, we have to go from the very first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible, from the first chapter to the last two chapters. And this is what Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse one says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Interesting. The Bible opens with a marriage and seems to be ending with a marriage. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. Huh? God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, and now at the end of all things, God is dwelling with mankind. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just pause there right now. Think about every tear you have cried in the last five years. God's going to wipe all those away. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, I wonder if we should care about what he has to say. The one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God. And he will be my son. But the cowards and the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what are we seeing in Revelation 21? A restored community. Jesus gets his bride, and they live in perfect Community. The marriage to which all marriages are meant to point is finally consummated. God is dwelling with humanity. We were made for community with the communal God, and we will eternally dwell with him in that perfect community. God removes the consequences of our broken community, our self-centeredness, no more sorrow, grief, pain, or death. Everything that breaks or interrupts community, everything that results from broken community, It's removed. And God makes all things new. And even those who are determined to break community as God designed it to be, and those who remain in that position of rebellion unrepentantly, they will not be allowed to share or spoil that community and that is just, and that is good. But how do we get from Act 3, broken community, in which we all participate as active and broken people, to Act 4, where only some will participate in eternal community with God and with the people of God. And that's where we come to Act 5. And Act 5 is this an invitation into community. The restored community of Revelation 21 is a not yet type of community. We are not able to experience that type of community yet. But there is an already reality to this community. It's something that you and I get to begin to enjoy because begin to get to get a taste of in the midst of this broken world. But how? And in what context? Well, God is calling out for himself from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, a people for his own inheritance. He's reconciling them to himself, even though they deserve only wrath. He's drawing them into his community with himself by uniting them to his son, Jesus. And more than that, he is giving to them his own spirit to dwell within them. And then he's placing them into this drama as a foretaste of what is to come. And he's doing all of this because he loves them. And that people that God is drawing together from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, that people is known collectively as the Big C Church. The church from every age and from every background. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus... If you're in this room and you're just exploring what it means to be a Christian right now in these moments, God is inviting you into this joyful fellowship of unbroken communion with the triune God on the basis not of your rightness with him, not of your works, not of your effort, not of your labors or your righteousness or your church attendance or your baptism, none of those things, but based solely upon the finished work of Jesus who is himself perfect. He is your righteousness if you will but submit to King Jesus. And God promises to unite you by faith to Jesus and to place you into this big C church community. He's inviting you into the restoration of community. But if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, then God's invitation to you comes in the form of a question. Are you enjoying the restoration of all things right now? Are you living into the fellowship you have with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit right now? Did you live this week as if you are in the middle of a cosmic drama? You are not the center. God's the center. And he's brought you into the center to Jesus by means of his spirit. And that sin that shamed you this week, that guilt that brought you down, that weakness that causes you to be so frail in your faith, none of those things break your communion with God the Father by means of the spirit through the Son. That is your inheritance so brothers and sisters let's live into that let's live as if it's true because it is and i know we walk into this place sunday by sunday and we're beat down and we're broken down and we have a hard time even believing and singing the faith of our fathers but god's invitation to us this morning is to repent of our unbelief repent, turn away from our own feelings of inadequacy and the shame and the guilt that weighs us down and to believe that we are in Christ and Christ is in us and Christ has shared with us his glory and God the Father loves us because of Jesus. So what are some implications for you and I? For Sojourn Community Church, what is the role that we have to play in this drama of community? Well, first, our role is to agree with God that community for the Christian is not optional. And then to step into that community by faith. And if our experience of Christianity is limited to this hour-and-a-half worship service from week to week to week to week, then we are missing out on significant portions of the Christian life. We cannot live out the Christian life as God intended it to be if we are in isolation. And we don't like to hear that as individualistic Western people because we like our freedom and our individualism. But friends, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is pulling together a people. We're just a ragtag bunch of people, aren't we? But we bear the image of Jesus. And God is inviting us deeper into that community. We are shortchanging the plan of God to transform us in and through community if this hour and a half is all that we know of the Christian life. So the Bible invites us to recognize our need for community, to turn from avoiding or ignoring community, and then to step by faith into deeper and deeper community with other believers. So for you, that may mean that you want to begin exploring church membership here or at another gospel-preaching church. Because the glorious reality is this isn't the only community of Jesus. Even within this neighborhood, there are brothers and sisters who have been brought into this same people group that are worshiping Jesus all across our city, all across our state, all across our country, and all across our world. Now for everyone here, another implication is we, we want to invite you once again to our next two Wednesday nights as we lay a foundation for what our community life together, our ministry life together is going to look like in our life group ministry. And as a church, it means that we are going to continue repeatedly, faithfully, persistently to call one another into deeper community. And that means that perhaps our conversations need to go on occasion a little bit deeper than the weather or sports or the next vacation, but to how we are actually doing with God if we're actually living life by faith. Second. Our role is to recognize that our community with one another is not superficial, uh, supernatural. Let me try that again. It is supernatural. It's not surface level. That means that our basis for community is not affinity around anything or anyone else apart from Jesus Christ. So that means who we vote for in the next election doesn't unite us. And should not be looked to as if it's a unifying factor for us. We aren't in community because we are all males or all females, obviously. We're not in community because we're all college students or senior saints. We aren't in community because we're all singles or all couples or because we all have kids or because we've all chosen the same educational environment for our kids. We aren't even in community because we all root for the Tennessee Vols. Did you know there are some Alabama fans in our church? Shocking, I know. So question, what can unite a Tennessee fan and an Alabama fan? And what could unite a 20-something single with a 50-something married couple? And what could unite a Republican and a Democrat or a conservative and a liberal? Nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it is good and right for relationships within the church to exist between individuals with similar interests, backgrounds, and life circumstances but those relationships could easily exist without the church. If we're going to be a church that represents to a watching world the power of inner gospel realities, then as a church, we are going to build our community upon realities that flow from following Jesus, not merely from some superficial realities of shared interests and backgrounds and life experiences. The third and final implication for us as a church family is this. Would you pray and would you labor with us towards being a church that represents the diversity of our surrounding community, united together in worship of Jesus? Now, in the coming days, we'll be announcing opportunities for our church family to get better connected to our neighborhood. Now, I hope you're connected to your neighborhood, but this church has a neighborhood, Hill City. And I don't think, as I look out here, we have too many folks actually from Hill City within our church family. And that's all in God's providence to this point. But would you pray with us and labor with us that God would be pleased to diversify our church, not for some illusion of inclusion and secular diversity models, but rather so that we would be a diverse community that declares His excellence for every type of person on the North Shore. And what a witness would that be for the watching world that is desperately wanting unity, even as it leans into division. Because if we believe that the gospel is for every person, And for all of life, then let's pray that God would do that here in this place. The drama of community is an invitation to experience the grand and glorious love of God in community. And that experience will never end for the believer that experience of the love of God will only expand and expand and expand and expand through all of eternity. The hymn writer worded it this way. O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, deep well of love. The streams on earth that I've tasted more deeply I'll drink above. There, there, To an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand, mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit, I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth. In Emmanuel's land, the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray together.